Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This is Brittany Mangelson, and I'm going to be your host for this episode. And today we are bringing you another uh, addition to our fair trade series, which is where we talk all about faith transitions. So I am here with my friend, Heather Holland. Heather lives here in Utah and, um, well, she should be a member of community of Christ by now, but we had to postpone her confirmation because of the pandemic and, uh, Omicron, but I'm here with Heather Holland, uh, to talk about her faith transition into community of Christ. So Heather, why don't you just say hello to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So, yeah, I live here. I live in Provo, Utah with um, my husband. And, um, well, I have five children, but only three of them live with us right now. Uh, I was raised in Tooele, Utah. So, you know, grew up here. I'm a Utah girl. And I currently teach English and creative writing and gender studies at Snow College. Awesome. Those are all very good things. Uh, being a Provo girl myself and my in-laws live out in Twilla, so there's a lot of camaraderie there. So as always, we just start at the beginning, whatever the beginning looks like to you. I'm just curious to know what faith and church looked like growing up. Um, were you engaged in church life? How important was God and spirituality in your formative years as you were growing up? Yeah, so um, church for me as a kid was wonderful and lovely. I I grew up in a ward that was, I mean, it wasn't, it was white bread Mormon Utah. So it wasn't diverse as far as um, ethnicity. We had a few, I think, Latino families in our uh, ward boundaries, um, but lots of different viewpoints and different kinds of people. And um you know, my family went to church every week. And I just remember church for me was just the feeling of being loved. Like I had several like grandparents there <laughs> that, that just loved me like one of their own. And, and so I think the, the most traumatic thing that happened to me as a kid when I was at church was one time I was part of a primary program and I had a part where I was, I was part of a family and I said something and everybody laughed and I wasn't trying to be funny. And I think they were probably just doing that. Oh, cute little kid sort of laugh where everyone <laughs> does that. But I was so offended. Like, how dare they laugh at me? I wasn't trying to be funny, <laughs> but other than that, like, Growing up in the church was just lovely for me. And I just, I think of my parents and how, how they lived the gospel in the church. And we were not the checklist sort of Mormons. We didn't do family home evening very often. We didn't pray and read scriptures all the time. But the focus was always for us on um, the Savior and being loving and generous. And my parents are and always have been just some of the kindest, most generous people I know. They're just incredible people. And, and so, you know, that, that was my view of Mormonism. 
is just that love and compassion and generosity and and so that's that's how i grew up with the church and that's what felt i don't know it just always felt good and right to me and um when i was a little older i started thinking well what's wrong with my family that we're not doing family home evening and we're not checking off all the boxes but of course perspective and maturity <laughs> has helped me understand that okay maybe maybe they had it right the whole time <laughs> so yeah okay i'll stop babbling that's <laughs> oh that's good so it sounds like you had a pretty idyllic LDS Mormon experience. So a lot of the maybe, uh, cause you know, we've talked to various people on the podcast before, and there are definitely different types of Mormon experiences. And some folks who, uh, you know, grew up in more of like a doomsday prepper type family, or, you know, people who were super, super, super involved with church. And so they had, you know, the scrupulosity was really intense. And so it sounds like your family was just kind of like a an average, happy, values-based, love everyone, uh, not super intense, but also dedicated to, you know, the core, um, I guess the core principles of the gospel, maybe they would say. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think part of that was, um, I mean, dad wasn't raised LDS. Um, He converted, I think, shortly after my parents got married. And then my mom was raised by her dad who was active LDS and her mom who was not. And I know her family were Quakers, but I don't know if her mom was a practicing Quaker or just kind of spiritual, but not religious. So, so, you know, I think from their families, there was never that intense focus that we have to be good Mormons. There was always just, we have to be good people and being part of the church is part of that. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, like I said, that just kind of sounds like the ideal LDS experience. So that's, that's awesome. So as you grew up and became a teenager and entered into high school, um, how, how did that faith experience continue? I mean, did you ever start questioning your place as a girl, woman in the church? Um, I don't know, just, just keep talking about, uh, your experience, like in the teen years growing up. Um, that's, that's the part of the story that I'm still trying to figure out. Well, it's not the part, but as a teenager, that's kind of where the scrupulosity sort of started to come in. Um, again, like I had a pretty idyllic experience growing up. And I had wonderful young women leaders um, who were, you know, across the board, just good, good people um, and a wide variety of, you know, some of them worked outside of the home, some didn't, some had been divorced and remarried. Um, They were all just fairly normal (laughs) people. And, And so there was never... I didn't have the, so much the, here's the perfect Molly Mormon that you have to be like sort of experience other than it's still young women's and it's still the program that teaches you that you have to do X, Y, and Z and that you should definitely prioritize marriage and family. And, and there was a lot of so many lessons on 
preparing for the temple and getting married married and you know we, we made temple boxes with little handkerchiefs and things to prepare for the temple and so so there was that real focus on you know you get married your mom you're you're in the temple and then of course the focus on purity and chastity which left me feeling pretty unworthy and and not good enough as a teenager and so so i was really good at believing the church was true i thought it was good i'd read the book of mormon felt like yes it's true it's good and if anything's wrong and anything feels wrong it's because i'm unworthy and there's something wrong with me and it was really easy to make that the story that anything that didn't feel quite right was because I probably wasn't doing things right. Um, and so, so that was sort of my experience as a teenager. I was very, very committed. It was almost like hanging onto a life raft that, that if I can hang on to this hard enough, everything's going to be okay and I'll be good enough. And, and so it was, comforting still in the way it was when I was a child, but also when I look back, I don't know that I experienced it in the moment, but when I look back, there was a lot of pressure to be a certain way and a lot of messaging that there was only one right way to live a good Mormon life. And clearly I needed to step up my game. <laughs> so, yeah. So I relate to this 100%. And I really am appreciative of the way that you articulated that because I think that there's a lot of folks who, and I, I mean, I should say that I am one of those lot of folks, or I was one of those lot of folks who thought, you know, I could be the young woman's leader that showed a different way that, you know, like maybe worked outside the home or did things differently or had different opinions. But from my perspective, when the uh, lessons, like you said, they're, they're so focused on marriage and um, disempowering women to feel like they can have a career outside the home or do anything outside of motherhood. Um, for me, it doesn't, it didn't necessarily matter uh, what my young women's leaders were like, and they were awesome, just like yours. Right. And truthfully, some of them have even reached out to me post my faith transition have said like, yes, go Brittany, you know, and they've been super supportive, but it, it didn't matter that they were teaching me because they were bound to the lessons and the program in the women's program. And so, um, yeah, just that reality that it doesn't necessarily matter who is delivering the message and how much they're trying to leave out or switch things around. You know, it's the actual curriculum and the, the culture and the doctrine and the purpose of the church uh, where I started, um, yeah, brushing up against maybe what I wanted to do or um, how I wanted to live my life. But obviously that was um, different from what you know, the, the church wanted. And so for me, I just shut myself down and then lived my life. So not to talk about myself, but it just sounds like there's a lot of overlap there. Um, and I think that a lot of, uh, women can relate because it's, um, it's really, really hard to graduate from young women's without feeling unworthy and like you're selfish if you want to do anything outside of motherhood. So, uh, 
now that we got that out. <laughs> so what was your uh, college experience like? Like, um, I don't, I'm not sure where you got your undergrad from, but yeah, singles ward, just all of that. And then I guess um, just wondering when you actually started questioning, you know, the purpose and the, the doctrines of the LDS church. Okay, so <laughs> my college experience was both very long and very short. So um, I went to Snow College, which, you know, I'm so happy to teach there because it was so good for me. And like a good Mormon girl, I was engaged by the second half of my freshman year at college. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, so I had a lot of ambitions and dreams and things that I wanted to do. I wanted to potentially be a professional musician. I wanted to do theater, which I did a lot of my, my first year of college. And somehow in my head, I had never quite connected that, you know, you can't do the get married early, start having kids right away and do all these things that you can explore as a young adult with, you know, being a starving artist and <laughs> sort of stuff. So, um, that was there, but also I, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. The question was, did I want to teach theater or music or English? And eventually I settled on, on English, um, but sorry, let me back up. So I got engaged to um, a boy I met at Tuella, Utah at a steak dance. Um, he was an army brat who had lived in Dugway for a while and we, um, we got married in 1997 when I was 19 years old. Um, after, you know, we'd known each other for about five years, but we dated for about two months before we were engaged and got married about four months after that. So <laughs> pretty quick. Um, and then uh, I was pregnant within a week of us being married. <laughs> and our daughter was born um, less than nine months after we got married because she came a little early. And um, yeah, so I still finished my degree at Snow College, uh, got my associate's degree, and then went to a semester at SUU doing English education. And I was pregnant with my second, my second baby, Scott. And he was born at the end of that summer semester. And then I never went back to school until my thirties. So, so I spent my twenties um, being a stay at home mom and a childbirth educator and a doula and reading lots and lots and lots of books. Um, and I would say that whole period was, I mean, we were very active. We were sort of, at least from the outside, a very uh, ideal LDS family. Um, mom, dad, five kids. On the inside, it was not that pretty. But, um, you know, I was very invested and in primary presidencies and relief society presidencies. But the whole time there was sort of this underlying, I'm not sure, it actually started around 1998 when Matthew Shepard was killed. And that was, a, I don't know why exactly, but that was hugely influential for me in starting to think about the LGBT community and um, 
friends that I had and adored who who were gay um, and recognizing, you know, this living in a world where someone who is so beautiful and wonderful as Matthew Shepard could be killed like that is not okay with me, not something I want to be a part of. And then starting to see, okay, I live in a church that very much does not affirm and support the LGBT community. But I kind of thought that I could balance those two things. And I did for a long time, like, okay, so I think maybe they're wrong, <laughs> that things are going to get better. And so my job is just to love people and keep the commandments and do my best. Um, so it was a really slow burn, I think, my faith transition that started with that. And then the temple was a difficult thing for me. The the inequality and sort of sexism that happens in the temple just starting with when i was pregnant i hated wearing a veil over my face in the temple just that was enough that i'm like why do we have to do this but also the ways that some of the covenants were were unequal and so a lot of seeds of things that um you know not not deal breakers for me but things that just didn't sit quite right. And, and again, like I had as a teenager, um, anything that didn't feel right, I just sort of chalked up to, uh, it must be about me not having enough faith, not quite knowing the answers. I've just got to do better, be better, pray more, read my scriptures more. So I'm gonna pause there. <laughs> again, I kind of feel like you're just, sharing my story. <laughs> like, there's just so much overlap. And I know you and I have talked about this, uh, just in private, but yeah, I, I truly feel like I'm just hearing my story, um, played back to me. So that would be really tough while you're trying to raise five kids. I mean, you know, we both know what the primary program is like, and if you were in the primary presidency, you know, trying to figure out that balance of like, okay, I'm, I'm recognizing that my church does have room to grow. It does have things that I would like to see them change. Um, my job is to just love people and, um, you know, follow Jesus, keep the commandments. Uh, but to, to parallel that to raising kids, I mean, that, that would be difficult. Do, how was it raising your kids in the LDS church? I don't have a lot of experience with that. <laughs> you know, there was a lot that I didn't question. And because a lot of what, I, when I started questioning some of the messaging and things that were happening in primary didn't start until like my early thirties um, when I went back to school and was getting my bachelor's degree and and a lot of the things that I was reading were helping me have a better sense of lived experiences that were very different from mine. And, and I hadn't had opportunities to talk to people for whom the church was a really harmful thing in their life. And having been able to stay centered in the church where, where our family was, the sealed in the temple, nuclear family, everything. I was living that, you know, correct with, you know, air quotes, um, correct Mormon life that I, I didn't see the margins until about then. And that's when I started 
getting a better sense of what was happening to those who were marginalized in the church and who couldn't fit themselves into the you know pretzel shape needed to to fit into that centered experience that i was having and and once i started seeing that more clearly that's when i started thinking okay what if what if these were my children who were having some of these experiences and even if they weren't my children like how can i feel safe in a space where not everyone feels safe um that that if if this is harmful for anyone i can't feel good about being part of it and but you know i still believed it was true and i held on and i taught my kids and so things shifted for me from you know as i was raising my kids it was very much oh goodness i was so all in like we would march around our house singing i will go i will do the things the lord commands you know the primary songs and we were way into it but then as I started looking at it and going, ooh, okay, wait, wait, maybe this isn't so great. This was by the time like my oldest was 12. And, and so they're really like, they'd been in it long enough that, that there wasn't much room to, to course correct and be like, okay, wait a minute. Um, plus I also had a spouse who, had absolutely zero doubts or questions about the church. And, and we were on very different tracks as far as how we were considering that. And, and so I didn't have a whole lot of space, I felt, to dissent. And um, I'm trying to figure out how to say this in the most compassionate but honest way I can, that it, there was a lot of emotional abuse and manipulation and control issues going on in our home um, with the way that my my former husband treated me and my children and and so I felt and it, it wasn't until after I was out of that marriage that I fully saw some of that and how that controlled the ways that I raised my children and the ways that I lived that, that there didn't feel like there was space for me to be honest and authentic without that being punished is too hard a word, but, um, you know, it, it was, it was difficult that I did not have a relationship or a spouse where I had that space to explore and still feel accepted and loved. Um, and, you know, to give him credit, he he tried, he really did to try to accept and listen, but I think he had this hope that I was going to figure it out and come back. Like I'd get with the program eventually. <laughs> and, and so even though I was questioning, I think he was holding on, hoping that at some point I'd get my act together <laughs> and get back with things. And, and I don't know that he recognized or that I felt like I could tell him the full weight of just how harmful I felt the church was. And so, yeah, that, I mean, I don't know that that's a succinct or a great answer. It was complicated. That's the short answer. It was complicated. And, and I remember like my last few years in the church was when I was in primary presidencies and I felt like I loved the, the, I loved being in the primary because it felt like that's where I could be like, okay, Jesus loves you. And you are good and you are loved, period. 
and and we didn't have to get into all the complications of like is gay marriage right or wrong or it was just I could just very clearly give them the core you know love God love yourself sort of two great commandments and that felt doable in primary in ways that in Relief Society and Sunday School had started to feel completely impossible <laughs> and so yeah that's that's kind of what the that period of my life was. Well, and I I don't think that there is a succinct or easy way to answer that question and it's it's so difficult to go through a faith transition just on your own. But then when you recognize that that impacts your relationships and your kids and your spouse and trying to juggle that um, is really, really, really difficult. I mean, I've been there and my kids were only three when we left and it still was a disruption to their life and their social circles and and things. And, And I did have the support of my spouse. And so to not have that and to have older kids, I know a lot of our listeners can relate, uh, who, who would consider themselves Latter-day Seekers because it doesn't always happen in a very clean, easy, everybody's on board and you all just leave together and, you know, you share the same doubts. And, uh, that is very, very, very rarely if, if, if it ever happens at all. Right. Um, so yeah, thank you for, for walking us through that and just, um, sharing the complexities and that, you know, in a lot of uh, patriarchal communities, which the LDS church is proudly one, uh, women don't always have the full autonomy to make their own decisions or to lead their family because your ex-husband was your priesthood authority and the head of your family. And so that really uh, diminishes the power that you have as a mother to make decisions for your own family. Um, and that that's a dynamic that... Um, is less talked about, I would say, or, you know, cause it's just kind of a given, um, such a cultural and doctrinal, like you said, with the temple thing that gets pulled in, but then it impacts every, every day life and every decision. And so often women just, uh, are, are just taught and expected to keep quiet and to let their spouse ultimately make the decisions and, uh, to, to be the, you know, director of the family and the course that they're on. So again, I think that your story is relatable to a lot of people and uh, just really shows the complexities of, of the family dynamics in a faith transition, which is really, really difficult. Also, I had completely forgotten about that song. (laughs) Right. And Nephi's yeah. courage. Yes, Nephi's <laughs> courage. The Lord commanded me by I totally yeah. forgot about that song. Oh my goodness. That's yeah. hilarious. Uh yeah, that was great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and one thing, like I'm just thinking about the dynamic with my my ex-husband and I, and we've had chances to talk post-divorce and all of the this stuff, but a lot of what was going on with him, like he doesn't see it this way because he's still very active LDS. And, and for him, you know, when we were going through a divorce, that, that was, that was the um, thing he clung to that kept him afloat (laughs) when everything was going down and things were hard. Um, But 
a lot of the reasons that that I see him being as manipulative and controlling and hurtful with our children as he was is because he had this constant sense of not being good enough, that he wasn't a good enough priesthood leader, that he was doing things wrong in his own life, that if his children didn't turn out okay, that that was a reflection on him and and that, that he wasn't a good enough church member. And so I just see a lot of the ways that he was not as great a dad or husband as he could have been actually stemmed from kind of the pressure to, to be a good Mormon. And, and again, I think he would see it differently, but that is a lot of what I saw was that he had this really deep sense of self-loathing and unworthiness that came from there only being one right way to live. And he knew he wasn't doing it. And if our children weren't doing it, then that meant he wasn't good enough. And so, yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's all very tricky being a family and having different ways of looking at things. Well, and I, I think the same thing about uh, different family members that I have um, or friends, parents, et cetera, that if they're, you know, if, if my generation isn't living up to the standards or if we leave, et cetera, et cetera, um, our parents blame themselves. And so I can definitely see that, that culture of feeling like you are responsible for this flock. And if you aren't living up to the standards and if you aren't doing enough, then, you know, you blew it as a parent. So I can, um, sympathize with that as well. And, and, you know, that, that's, that at different times within Mormonism is explicitly talked about, you know, and um, the pressure to, to have a faithful family is really strong. And I'm assuming that, uh, that, that pressure is even talked about more strongly in priesthood, different priesthood classes and quorums and things, because yeah, men are supposed to be the leaders of their family. And so if there's any sort of fracture, any sort of, of, uh, wandering off the straight and narrow, then who's to blame, you know, them. So that that's, yeah, yeah that is a, a tricky dynamic. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. A tricky it's dynamic. Honestly, sorry. No, it's, it's honestly part of what kept me in the church as long as it did when my faith started crumbling. I mean, there was this pressure of like, Ooh, what if I lead my children astray? Like if I happen to be wrong and I take my whole family with me and then I change my mind, there's, you know, no one doing that, um, on my own, but there was also a real sense of pressure because I have wonderful, loving parents and, and the most painful thing for me of a faith transition has been knowing that I might disappoint them because they are good. And I've often said that everyone if everyone lived Mormonism the way that my parents live Mormonism, like everybody should be Mormon. <laughs> Just maybe not entirely. They're not perfect, but, but it's led them to be generous and kind and ethical, good people without a lot of judgmental elements of it and without that sense of having to be perfect. And, and so you know, if I'd had family, honestly, that I knew if I left the church, they would just flat out reject me. I'd be like, screw it. Here I go. But knowing that I had family that I would disappoint and hurt, that they would still be there and still love me was actually harder for me, knowing that I might make my parents feel like they'd failed. Um, whereas I kind of see it that I'm acting on the values that they gave me. 
and continuing to try to be generous and good and you know follow Jesus's example the way they taught me to it's just taken me in a different direction um so so yeah that pressure to be good parents and that if your parent if your children don't turn out all right then that's, that's so painful so so painful and with my parents there's the added like my brother died of a heroin overdose a few years ago and so there's that added pain of okay is our family going to be whole and and i imagine that it's just probably painful for them to see me leaving of my own free will <laughs> and not because of addictions or um other things so yeah oh thank you for sharing that and again i I can relate um, because the disappointment of disappointing really good people that taught you good values like that is very, very tricky. And it's, it's an ongoing disappointment that, you know, shows up in different ways at different times. And um, then feeling like, and again, I'm speaking from my experience, but feeling like you have to prove yourself. Like I still am a good person. You know, <laughs> I'm not this moralist you know, like I didn't, I didn't throw everything away. Like I'm still a good person, but for me, like feeling like I have to prove that in some way, which is silly, but it's, it, it happens. It's, it's reality. Yeah, so, sure. yeah. So what was your breaking point, um, with the church and, and what did that look like? Um, Gosh, there were a series of breaking points. And um, so 2013, um, my, my ex-husband and I separated. And then I was dealing with intense depression and anxiety. And, and a lot of it for me, okay, let me see, I'm just trying to trace this. So, so there was one night where I had a wonderful friend um, that I was going to school with and we would go to creative writing club together. And then I'd give him a ride home cause he was on my way. And one night he, before he went into his apartment said, Heather, I need to tell you something. You know, I told you I was sick last week and that's why I wasn't coming to school or anything. He said, I was actually in my room playing video games, trying not to kill myself because I've realized I'm, he said, because I'm gay and I've realized I can't be gay and be Mormon and still be okay. And I remember telling him at that point that, you know, God loves you and wants you to be happy and feeling that so strongly that it, if you need to leave the church to be happy and whole and well, then that's where you need to be because God wants you happy and whole more than he wants you to be part of any one particular church. And that was the moment where I kind of made a commitment to myself that I was going to be true to what felt right at my core instead of what any external religion was telling me was right. And so that sort of started it. And then um, there was, you know, the ordained women movement was a moment where I didn't jump in because I was, again, very afraid of 
judgment of disappointing people, but I was 100% on board with like, things are not okay in the inequity between genders in our church. And so that sort of started to snowball. I remember on the wear pants to church today was, which was so like, I try to explain that to people outside of the church. They're like, why was this a big deal? I'm like, oh, people were up in arms. There were news stories about it. And Ooh, it was a big deal. And, and I, you know, wasn't sure I wanted to out myself as, you know, a rabid feminist who wears pants to church. And so I, I laid on my floor crying that morning, um, trying to decide what to wear, <laughs> whether to wear pants or a skirt. And, and it was, you know, I look back and, and I shouldn't see it as silly because that's not very compassionate to my past self. But that was a big deal. And, and knowing that people were that angry about women wearing pants to church, let alone wanting to be ordained to the priesthood or wanting to have more say and power in the church was just, you know, too much. Um, and so, you know, in back to 2013, um, moving into 2014, I remember just praying my heart out and not being able to feel the spirit, not being able to feel that warmth that I always felt when I prayed. Um, and I look back and realize, oh, that was probably just depression. Like I, I couldn't feel a lot of good things, but, but the story I was telling myself is God isn't there. God isn't real. I, if I can't have that connection, then I think maybe I just had convinced myself there was a God. And, and at that point I was angry and sad and borderline atheist and um, really struggling. And that's when my, my younger brother died suddenly and, and going through grief and loss without that belief in an afterlife, without any sense that I don't even think God exists. I don't, let alone knowing if an afterlife exists and also the guilt of I was so concerned about my brother's eternal well-being, whether or not he was going to be with us forever, that I put so much pressure on him to come back to the church, to stop using, and, and it kept me from just being there with him. And that, I think, was the biggest breaking point where I'm like, I feel like the way it's not that I blame the church, but the way that I followed the teachings of the church kept me from loving my brother in the way that he needed. And I'm, I don't ever want to be in that place where I'm letting worry about an afterlife or eternity get, get in the way of doing what I need to do to love people right here and right now. And if I'm not living heaven and loving the people I love here on earth, then what's the point of, of afterlife? It, it needs to be about now. And so that was probably the point where there was no return. I still kept attending church for a couple of years, but um, I think that was probably the main breaking point for me. Oh, thank you for sharing that, Heather. I just can feel 
the weight in your words. And again, know that so many people can relate because, um, recognizing that, that the focus on the afterlife and the focus on progression and perfection really, really puts a barrier up to real human suffering here and now. And it, it goes against your core nature to, to love. Right. And if that's the Mormonism that your parents raised you in, and if those are the values that your parents and your family had, um, I, it kind of goes back to that. The first thing, one of the first things we were talking about where, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter how great of a young women's leader you have, you know, the core teachings teach X, Y, and Z. And so it, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter, but (laughs) it doesn't matter (laughs) completely what kind of home you grew up in because the core teachings of the church still just kind of cast this shadow of focusing so much on the afterlife and being perfect. And, and that becomes the barrier, right? Like the, the doctrine, the, the teachings become a barrier uh, to love and not to get too much into the weeds, but you know, even the current prophet says like, God's love is not unconditional, like it's conditional. And, uh, that has very real, that has very real impact to how humans interact with one another. If, if that's your construct of God, if that's your construct of, of the purpose of life, uh, when things go the quote unquote wrong way, it impacts our ability to show up and love and cope and grieve and all of the things. So I'm really sorry that that, that lesson came to you in, in such a, a tragic way, but thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, it's, it was, it was definitely hard and, you know, it continues to be hard that, you know, what if, and how could I, I have been a better sister, et cetera, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just listening to you, I keep thinking of the people always say, um, the church is perfect, but the people aren't. And I, I kind of feel the opposite way. Me too. All these people are good. I love them. They're wonderful and they're trying their best. But some of the things, not all of the things, but some of the things in the LDS church suck and (laughs) make it harder for us to see each other and be compassionate and gentle and let go of the shame and trust that things are going to be okay. And if this whole Christ story of grace and goodness is true, then then we don't need to worry so much about making sure that everybody's towing the line or that we're doing everything perfectly. Like I just have so much, not certainty at all, like who knows, but just trust that that things are okay and we're going to be okay as long as we hold on to each other and do our best by each other. Mm, absolutely amen to that you just preached a sermon my friend (laughs) it's so true though and I I know for me leaving uh the line that you just said it makes uh, some things in the LDS church make it so hard to see each other that was 100% my experience and then when I stepped away from it I was like oh this world is not as scary. This world is not as 
you know, filled with evils and like just all of the things like I could actually see people with compassion first and uh, recognize that I was worthy of receiving that compassion. And it wasn't like Brittany Mangelson against the world, you know, it was like, oh, I am the world and God loves the world. And like, we're, we're okay. We're okay. If we just meet each other with compassion and empathy and, uh, yeah, I, again, relate to everything that you're saying. And I absolutely agree that line of the church is perfect, but the people are not, I'm like, Oh, you're getting it backwards. <laughs> it's not. <Yep. laughs> oh goodness. So let's move into, I guess, your reconstruction phase. Um, So talk about when you first encountered Community of Christ. Were you looking for a church? Were you wanting to replace it? Um, Your Mormon experience? Just, yeah, talk about those early, early days of finding Community of Christ. Um, Yeah, I was, I was definitely kind of flailing at that point because you know, when you grow up and I think I was 34, 35, mid thirties, um, at this point, And I had had very few years where I didn't go to church every single Sunday. Like the idea of not having a church family, not having that was really hard. And yet at this point I was just fully atheist. Like no, I, I, I can't, I don't think there's a God. If there is a God, God is a jerk who's, who's mean and makes everything harder and set this up for all of us to fail. And, you know, very much in that anger phase, if we think of like Fowler stages of faith, like I was so angry, so angry and so hurt. Um, And that was also around the time that there was the exclusion policy in the LDS church, um, where, where children were excluded from saving ordinances if their parents were gay and together. And I was like, okay, I know this is not of God. Like I cannot say that the Jesus that said, you know, let the children come unto me would say, oh, except if your parents are gay. Like that was just so not okay with me. And that was also around the time when Kate Kelly was excommunicated. And, you know, I don't know Kate at all personally, but I believed strongly in all of the principles she was fighting for. I was just quieter about it. And and so that felt very much like a symbolic excommunication of everyone who held any dissenting beliefs who wanted to speak up about them, who felt uncomfortable with the church and the way that gender and sexuality were being handled. And so I, you know, I was just done. And I posted something on Facebook, I think, and my friend Monica English, who you know, um, reached out to me and said, Heather, are you, how are you doing with, with faith and things? Just very, you know, putting feelers out. And I let her know where I was. She said, we should go have lunch sometime because I would love to talk to you about this. You know, that me too, because you never want to, at least I've never wanted to be super outward and critical in ways that would make other people feel judged for staying in the LDS church. And, and 
I've, you know, having been through a faith crisis, it sucks. I don't want to initiate that for anyone. (laughs) And so a lot of us, I think, go through it alone, Um, especially then. I think there's more talk about it now, but you, you, there are people right next to you going through the same thing and you don't know it. So anyway, Monica reached out to me. We went to lunch and we were talking and and she just told me the story about finding community of Christ, not at all in a missionary way. Like, I want to make that really clear. She was just saying, so I was going to the LDS church and community of Christ at the same time. And then meeting times changed. And I just decided to keep going to community of Christ because that felt right. And I'm like, that's that weird RLDS church. Like, I know better than to think they're okay. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't quite that judgmental, but there was that prejudice there where I'm like, I've been taught that those are the weirdos with the weird looking temple. <laughs> so I know what you mean. Was, yeah. <laughs> so it was Father's Day, I think in 2015 that I first attended. I was going to Tuella to see my dad. My kids were with their dad. And so like I was free. I could, I didn't need to go to my ward. Um, and I did not want to go to an LDS church on Father's Day, so I thought, I'll go to Community of Christ, and my first impressions that first time were like, this is weird and different. I'm not used to this sort of service, but all these people are really nice, and and it, and so I just started coming more and more, and it felt like it, whether or not I I didn't feel a need to jump into another religion. I didn't feel a need to join anything else because I wasn't even sure if I felt like God existed or if religion was even going to be a good thing for me. But I did know that I felt safe in community of Christ, that I could say out loud, I'm not sure if God exists. And nobody even batted an eye or looked at me like I'd grown two heads, which is what I feel like would happen if I were to say that in Sunday school. (laughs) in my LDS church. Um, so, so yeah, it just felt like a good place to rest and be, and still be able to have a sense of spirituality and community without all of the baggage I was carrying around, um, from, from the LDS church. So I also, uh, when my husband was first looking into community of Christ, I thought, what the RLDS church, like, what are they even doing these days? Right? Like I just, I, I thought I knew, uh, but I had no idea, but I, I had to kind of get over some of those hangups and it sounds like, you know, you walked in with some preconceived ideas that, um, were like, wait, what is this church? You know? So can you, can you maybe talk us through some of those hangups or how you were able to, move beyond the, wait, that weird church, (laughs) those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, part of it was that the services looked really different. And so that took some getting used to, um, that the prayer for peace and lighting candles and ringing chimes. And that was all really foreign to me. And, and having been raised in the one true church mentality, anything that feels foreign, I think it first feels wrong and, and having to step back and go, okay, this is different and uncomfortable because it's new, but that doesn't mean it's bad. And having to get out of that one true church and, and also like 
having that still in the back of my head, even though I had really just totally deconstructed all of my beliefs and sense of what I thought was true, I still had that, well, this doesn't feel like the one true church either. And, and having to let go of like there, I don't believe there is such a thing anymore. There, there are churches <laughs> and there are ways that we can find community and feel a connection to the divine. And, and they are many. And I think it's lovely and beautiful that there are so many spaces, but it took a while to get there. And, and part of it was also like, there was this affinity for community of Christ because it came from the same background of Joseph Smith and the restoration, while also a lot of pushback because it came from Joseph Smith and the restoration. Um, and so having to make my peace with, with Joseph Smith was definitely part of it. We, I didn't even have, like, I didn't even start looking into church history and didn't read the CES letter, hadn't looked into Book of Mormon historicity until well after I had left the church. I know for a lot of people, that's what sends them out. But for me, it was just an inner sense of the church I'm in does not align with my values. I can't continue to be here and have a sense of integrity. But then I started wrestling with all that other stuff. And that was when I'm like, okay, well, if none of this is as good or as, you know, golden and whitewashed as I was taught, then none of it's true. It can't possibly be true. And so I had to wrestle with that because community of Christ has the same background. Then there was also this, like I had this internal principle of belief that, that we should accept and love all forms of people. But I was very much used to going to church and having a certain kind of people and a certain kind of veneer that everybody at least tried to look the same and be the same and act the same. And so coming to Community of Christ, I'm like, there's all kinds of different people here. And, and I had to get my, over my own, like, I hate admitting this, but I felt like at that point in my life, I loved people on principle, but still had that emotional discomfort of, but wait a minute, and then it took a while where as I started looking at this, I'm like, wait a minute, this is exactly what I want. I want to be in community with people who don't have it together and don't pretend to have it together and are coming from all kinds of different spaces and, and that everyone's welcome and everyone's loved. And, and so that was a lot of, you know, just kind of working through the ways that I'd been programmed to see the world as you know, the one true or the right way versus everybody else and, and being able to step into that wider view of, okay, um, this is, this is what it looks like. This is the kind of Zion or <laughs> I don't know that Zion's the right word, but this is the sort of community I want to be a part of because I feel like, you know, sort of a ragamuffin, like I'm, even if I look okay on the outside, I feel pretty dang messy on the inside. <laughs> So being able to walk in and be like, okay, yeah, these are my people. Um, and so I don't know, it was, it was just sort of a slow process of recognizing the, that I wasn't looking for another true church. I was looking for another community that could help me feel a sense of my own worth and the worth of others and 
a sense of connection to something larger than myself. And, and so recognizing the ways that community of Christ had sought what I was seeking and that I could see that in their growth and their journey toward moving from that early Joseph Smith days to a church that ordains women and fully affirms the LGBT community, that, that all of that was messy and hard in the same way my journey had been messy and hard. And, and that is where I grew to just, just love it and feel safe um, and, and good in community of Christ. Once again, I feel like I'm just hearing myself talk because I could have said all of those things. And I distinctly remember, um, you know, I'd been with Community of Christ for maybe, I don't know, three or four months at that point. And we were uh, inching closer to the decision to actually join. And I looked around and just thought like, man, if we were all, if the people in the sanctuary were all in a Mormon ward together, with just other typical Utah Mormon people, we probably, very few of us would probably be friends with each other, right? Like if we were all in the same neighborhood and we were all, we still had that Mormon lens on, um, we probably would not be confiding in each other like we are in this sanctuary. We would not be hearing each other's stories like we were doing. Um, and I would have held prejudice. Um, and, and that, that is something that, you know, I really had to wrestle with of like, oh, wow. Like I, I am part of the problem of, of people feeling isolated in a religious community. Like I was part of that system and I, um, have often joked, but it's not really a joke, but I was a really, really good Mormon, which meant I was a pretty judgmental person. (laughs) And, you know, I, I definitely very distinctly remember looking around the sanctuary in Salt Lake and our congregation is primarily former LDS and just thinking, man, what, a what a place that we as a very, very broken community who all feel rejected to some degree uh, can come together in community and can be friends with one another. Um, Because again, if the circumstances were different, if we just all happen to be in the same ward, um, LDS congregation, uh, there are very real things that would have kept us separated. And uh, what a tragedy that is, because I really like the Salt Lake congregation. We are a quirky bunch, and I, I am, I am a fan of us. <laughs> it's good. Me it's too. a good place. And I've been so enriched by mm-hmm. just the diversity of all the different kinds of voices and people and lives that we come in contact with. Like such good people that you would never know that just looking from the outside and judging from that Mormon lens that you're not, you're not doing the, you know, perfect veneer on the outside, which, you know, if you dig far enough, there are very, very few people for whom that's not just a veneer. Yeah. And I love that in our, our Salt Lake congregation, we can just let that down. <laughs> We're like, look at how messy I am. <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah, me too. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> oh, exactly. We are a quirky, but very lovable bunch. <laughs> oh, makes me laugh. So 
as I mentioned at the beginning, um, you were supposed to be confirmed by now and our congregation closed on the day of your confirmation. So we postponed that a little bit um, until we can be back together in person, uh, which I, you know, feel bad about, but I'm really glad that it's still going to be able to happen in person. Um, But what are the kinds of things that you've been able to do as being part of, of this community? I mean, how have you been able to get involved? That kind of thing. Um, so I've done less than I would like to do and not because I haven't been welcome to, uh, but because even up until like six months ago, maybe a little earlier than that, I was still in the Mormon mindset of like, you know, overstep your boundaries. That's not my calling. That's not what I do. I don't have the authority to do that. And so I was just, I've just kind of been waiting to be asked because I didn't want to overstep, which now that I look at it, I'm like, oh, I could have just been fully involved planning services, doing whatever um, (laughs) from, from day one that I stepped in. But one thing I've loved doing is being part of the music. Um, Back when Seth Bryant was our um, pastor, I just maybe no it was even when robin it was when robin was still here i told her hey i'd really love to play the piano can i do that and she said yeah of course and gave me hymn books and and so i got to play the piano which which i love which was my comfort zone in the lds church too i kind of pushed against it because like guys i have talents other than playing the piano and directing music and that's sort of what happens if you're a music person in the lds church you get pigeonholed um and so that was frustrating for me but also it's really nice to be like I could just show up and play the piano and a lot of people can't play the piano so it's a really nice form of ministry <laughs> to be able to offer that so I've been able to do that and give prayers of prayers for peace and share my experiences and just I'm, I'm just trying to think it's knowing that I could have been helping with planning services and all of those sorts of things all along, like I'd like to do that more, but, um, yeah, I don't know that I have anything more articulate to say on that. Well, I think that the fact that you've been able to contribute to conversations that foster and allow for doubt and for deconstruction and reconstruction, I think that that in and of itself uh, means that you, I'm about to get cheesy, but like that means that you're a minister of hospitality and invitation and allowing for people to hear their story within your story. Um, that's huge. And that's not something that you can do in the LDS church, right? Like it, that goes back to that whole veneer thing. You can't necessarily be authentic. And so showing up as your just Heather Holland self and being <laughs> able to contribute to Sunday school um, or even, you know, just talking with people over potlucks back when we used to be able to have potlucks, just those kinds of things. That's, that's huge. Um, but I'm also glad that you raised the point that this transition for LDS folks can be really difficult because being told what to do is what we're used to. And so when, uh, that is, is kind of turned back on us and like, well, you tell us what you want to do. It, it, it's weird because, you've never been taught to 
to even think about what you want to do, right? You're told what to do in every, at every step of the way. And so to have that autonomy turned back on you, for me, it was a little bit jarring. And I just kind of said yes to everything to figure out, you know, like what is like somebody needed, you know, they needed help here. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that. Mostly because I just didn't even know my own personality. I didn't even know how to to plug in. And I was drowning with three young children. So I'm like, Oh, something that will help me, you know, interact with adults. Great. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it can be really tricky to even to know how to even begin to figure out what you want to do to be able to say, I'm going to use my voice to vocalize that. And then you have this whole idea of like, man, I've been burned out because I've been a worker bee in my ward for so long, you know, like it's kind of nice to just sit in the pew and have a break. And so it's a really, it doesn't seem like it would be a complex thing for Latter-day Seekers, but it actually is. And time and time again, I feel like just like those, those complexities of this part of the transition are just made so apparent. It's like, oh yeah, we really do struggle with volunteerism in a way that is unsurprising because we're not we did not grow up with a foundation of even believing that we could do anything that we wanted to do. So I don't know. It's, it's weird. It's very weird. So. Well, and just the authority structure is so different. Yeah. That the idea of like, I could just tell Carla, Hey, I'd like to plan a worship service and she'd say, okay, here's, here's the information you need. Let me know if you need help. And I could just run with it. Mm-hmm. That is not something I would that's not something that the normal member just does in the LDS church. That's something the leaders do. It comes from the top down. It's very much prescripted. And so it took me a while to recognize that, oh, there's not the same sense of hierarchical authority here. Like even like the first time I met Steve Vizi, like he introduced himself to me as Steve. And it took me a minute to go like, oh, wait, that's the dude that's the prophet and president of the church. <laughs> that's <laughs> Steve guy over there. <laughs> even a polo shirt with a backpack. <laughs> and, and that was so refreshing that, that for him, that, that office of, of prophet and president is about leadership and responsibility and stewardship and love, not about power and authority and, um, status. Mm -hmm. And, and so, and that's the way the whole church kind of functions that, that there's not that sense of status. And some people are allowed to have access to this information and some people are allowed to do this, but everybody else just do your calling and be quiet. And that may be a little too harsh, but maybe not. (laughs) It's just very different getting used to very different. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that was too harsh for what it's worth. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, so Heather, I, I have just really enjoyed this conversation a lot. I'm, I'm curious to know what you're excited about in community of Christ, or what are some of your hopes for the church? And also what would you tell other Latter-day seekers that are looking into community of Christ? So that was, those were, that was kind of big, but like, what, what are your hopes for the community? And then what would you just want to share with, with other Latter-day Seekers? Mm. I think, I mean, first of all, I'm excited to actually <laughs> get confirmed soon here. 
Um, but I just, I mean, I just hope we keep growing and keep having difficult conversations and being willing to open space for those who are hurting and doubting and, and, and I hope I can continue to be part of that, just that continual growth and confronting difficult truths rather than backing away from them. Because I think God is every, but every bit as much in that struggle, in that mess as in, you know, the peace and the pretty things that come with religion and religious community. And so I just hope we keep doing that. And I'm excited to be a bigger part of that. Um, and if I were to tell other seekers, um, one thing I would say is don't be afraid of being proselytized. In fact, if you want to join, you're going to have to tell them over and over again and pin them down and say, no, really, I want to be part of this church. So don't worry <laughs> that if you walk in, it's going to be a missionary experience for the people there. Just come and rest and see if you feel good there. And people will just love you and be glad you're there and you don't have to be any particular way and you can be honest about what you believe and don't believe in where you are and there will be space opened up for you and you know I haven't attended every congregation all over the world but I know that's true of the Salt Lake congregation and I was in Fort Collins and it was definitely true there um but I think that's the main thing like don't don't worry that this is going to be you're going to feel any pressure at all to join just people are going to be happy to have you there. And, and if you ever do want to join, you are going to have to make that very clear before it happens. <laughs> oh, I'm laughing, but man, it's kind of a blessing or a curse. And I feel like particularly in the Salt Lake congregation, we're so sensitive to putting that pressure on people. So, um, yeah, you are not the only one that's been hanging around for years and people you know, are like, are, is anyone ever going to ask me to be baptized? It's like, well, no, that's initiated by you. And again, that's one of those things that just kind of gets lost in translation sometimes um, mm -hmm. that, that's, that's unexpected. So, and I legitimately waited on my own for, for a long time for reasons. So it wasn't like I've been begging to get baptized for years, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it is kind of a like, no, really, really, it's time. So Heather, as you, as you were exploring community of Christ and realizing that you wanted to join, uh, what was the reaction like to your family and friends? I know that uh, you've, you've since remarried. Uh, I actually had the privilege of marrying you, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, but, but how, how did those conversations go with, with your loved ones? So. Um, yeah, with, with Rob, my, my husband now, uh, he's been part of the conversation from day one. He was there for the awful, awful reconstruction. I mean, deconstruction, because we were friends um, while I was going through divorce and everything. And he has been there every step of the way. And he's also a former LDS. His parents are wonderful, wonderful people um former BYU professors they're currently serving a mission in the Congo and they've been super supportive and loving about it but Rob is an atheist and a Buddhist and um very much driven by values and an ethical center but not religious and yet he has been supportive 
every single step of the way and just celebrated me being willing to grow and change and explore and figure things out. And so, you know, when, when I told him that I decided for sure, he, he was not surprised. He's like, I've been waiting for you to figure that out. <laughs> so, so he was not at all surprised and just completely supportive. And my children have been so supportive and they're all over the map. I have um, a child who's still very active LDS and she's been so kind and supportive of, of my faith and my faith journey. Um, and I hope I've been supportive of hers because she's so good and, and the LDS church serves her and helps her be better. So she's been good. And then my other kids have differing levels of faith and belief and relationships with all of that. And they've been wonderful. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been good. And I've been pretty, like, I'm not advertising the fact that I'm changing religions because I, I just kind of do keep things close to the chest. And so I have some friends who have been loving and wonderful and supportive, some who have no idea. <laughs> and, and so, so we'll see as, as I'm more and more open, how, how people respond, but um, yeah, that's, that's that. It's a lot of uh, relationships to navigate, but it sounds like the people who are closest in your everyday life um, are really supportive and that is what matters most. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. So Heather, thank you for sharing your story and for being so vulnerable and being so open. Um, I always like to ask if there's anything that I didn't ask or things that you uh, wanted to say just uh, as we wrap up. Um, I think the biggest thing I've learned from my faith journey, that if I could go back and tell myself seven, eight years ago would be, um, that there's not a right way to be or a correct timeline for figuring things out or a correct destination even, and, and I, I think suffered a lot of self-doubt and self-flagellation because I felt like, oh, I should be over this by now, or I need to just either decide to, to go back to believing in God and religion or just give it up and, and live a secular life and be a good person. But I think the thing that I'd tell myself is just give yourself space to grow into who you're going to be and that there's no rush there's no right way to do this um, but just be kind and recognize it might take a while and that's okay and and just figure out where you need to be and wherever you are on the road is the right place to be right now absolutely ah what beautiful advice and needed advice uh, to just take your own life by to just take control of your own life. <laughs> That's that again is something that uh, we don't often give ourselves the permission and the grace to do. So thank you for articulating that. Okay. Well, Heather, thank you so much again for sharing this story. I know that I related to so many points in it, and I know that um, other seekers are going to relate to it as well. Um, and again, just thank you for your vulnerability and for sharing uh, a big, big piece of who you are and of your heart. So Thank you so much. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 